Welcome to the Magellan Podcast, navigating education in the 21st century. This podcast brings the expertise of Magellan Learning Solutions to the biggest questions and issues in higher education. It is produced and directed by Adam Rank, podcast theme written and recorded by Wayne Patton, and it features Magellan partners Wayne Patton, Aaron Traphagen, and Emily Hetty. What is an online learning ecosystem? Online learning, especially at the higher education level, requires more than just courses and instructors. It requires courses to be designed intentionally and the instructors to be trained specifically for the online environment. Additionally, the entire online student journey from inquiry to graduation requires an interconnected, student-focused network made up of people, policies, and processes that undergird every aspect of the educational experience. All of these factors are necessary for a successful online program, whether large or small. Join the Magellan Learning Solution partners as they discuss the key components of an online learning ecosystem. Hey, thanks, Adam. And I just want to take a moment to welcome everybody to the second episode of the Magellan Learning Solutions podcast. Uh, You're here with Wayne Patton, CEO of Magellan Learning Solutions, uh, Emily Hetty, Chief Academic Officer here at Magellan, and myself, Aaron Trapagan, Chief Operating Officer here at Magellan. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the need for organizations to build and maintain a healthy online learning ecosystem. Uh, so, Wayne, to lay a little groundwork, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what we mean when we use the term online ecosystem? I'm willing to, to do that, Aaron. Appreciate that. Um, so I think we may have been the first people that I know of to use this term within the context of online learning. Good I don't think we've heard it from anyone else. I think people, of course, use it in different contexts. But as it, as it relates to all of the intricate aspects of, a, of an online learning system um, program, that it, it's all-inclusive. I mean, it, it literally, in the sense of an ecosystem, it's everything. It's the air, it's the dirt, it's the plants, it's the biological life within that context. And within, a, within an online program, it, it's literally everything uh, that, that, that gives support, uh, gives lift to, to that online learning system, that program, the systems, the operations, the people, the processes, the policies. It's, it's all-inclusive. And so I think... We started using it as a way to describe um, all the different things we did for, for client institutions. And that is we would go in, often we would do an assessment of a program, and what we would often see, and we alluded to this in our, in our first episode uh, about RSI, uh, some institutions in the early days of online and even now, they'll, they'll build out a program online or two, um, and they will, you know, in, in some way market or, or launch those courses. And, and, and sometimes there's not much more to it than that. So there's not necessarily a healthy ecosystem. As we were talking about earlier, there is an ecosystem. And sometimes the lack of a sound ecosystem is in and of itself an ecosystem. So sometimes uh, that ecosystem maybe looks more like a desert. There's not a whole lot of things giving lift and giving support and, and leading to a healthy program. Unlike, imagine a lush, tropical, jungle paradise. Uh, that's, that's what we're really here to talk about, is what are all the pieces from the first step a student takes to, hmm, I've heard this school has an online program. Let me go to their website and take a look through the admission process, enrollment, 
um, their studies all the way through graduation. There's a million moving pieces in this, and we'll get to every every single one of them actually uh, just today. Every single one. Of them. Every one of them. No, and that's the point. We we probably can't get to everything, but what we'd like to do is is kind of present the grid of a healthy ecosystem, and so we'll we'll tackle that today. Yeah, and to, and to do that, I think we've sort of logically, in our minds anyway, bro- broken it down into a couple of stages of the process. And so uh, we want to start by talking about the recruitment enrollment uh, element of bringing a student in, uh, enrolling them in the organization, uh, then break down, talk about the first semester onboarding experience, uh, what happens during that time, what that ecosystem looks like, and then kind of what we call the rest of the time, everything else. Um, and then we'll kind of end as we always do with some, uh, final thoughts and, and, uh, big questions. So, uh, to get us started off, Emily, um, we wanted to jump into talking about the enrollment and recruitment, uh, phases of this. And so what, what do we need to be thinking about? Yeah. So every campus is, is structured a little bit differently and that, that sounds like a truism, but it's, it's actually true. Um, so I think for each of these phases we're talking about, we need to think about, who has um, who has eyes on a student and who's reaching out to a student and making contact with them or a potential student. Um, that may include various groups of stakeholders like faculty, um, staff, professional staff, administrators, so on. Um, and then think about what units these, these folks are, are working with and for um, at each phase in this process. And again, it's going to be different on your campus, but we've chosen this ecosystem metaphor very, very deliberately because ecosystems are not without conflict. They're not without role differentiation, but ultimately the whole thing has to work together or it's not really an ecosystem. Um, it's, it's really just chaos at that point. Um, if you've, if you set up a fish tank and I've unsuccessfully tried that quite a few times at home, um, you, you think you know what I'm talking about here. You're talking about harmony, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, for example, um, to talk about the recruitment enrollment side of things, in, in a former life, I, um, I ran an admissions office. That was not what I trained for in graduate school. Um, I trained for a faculty role. And um, admissions was sort of, I think, the opposite of how I envisioned myself um, back in the day. But um, through working through these online systems, I, I came to understand the real importance of on that institution anyway, um, faculty voices in the recruitment and enrollment process, um, because really those are the people that our students were going to be spending the next four years of their life being mentored by. So it made sense for them to establish those relationships early. Um, I think on different campuses, though, I've seen admissions run completely separately from the academic side of the house, and that that's often easier in terms of how you set it up. Um, The thing will run like a very nice machine if it doesn't have to cooperate with anyone else. On the other hand, you pay for that later on in in certain ways. So just as a kind of thought experiment, maybe think about your campus and say, all right, um, if we've got some student out there 50 miles from where we are and they want to go do an online undergraduate business program and there may be a mom who's raised a couple of kids and they're old enough now that, um, you know, they've got some, some credits to transfer in. Um, but they don't really know what to do. Um, what what does that process of getting to your school look like for a student like that? Um, if if you're like a lot of people, they're probably going to start with Googling um, something like online business programs in my area. Or maybe they had a friend who was enrolled at your school at some point and they heard something nice about it. So then maybe maybe if you're lucky, they'll go directly to your school's webpage. Um, so imagining those two paths, just just do them for yourself. Um, pretend you don't know who you are and you don't know anything about your programs. Um, what happens when you Google online business programs in my area? Do you show up? If you don't, 
Um, you probably need to do some search engine optimization, some things like that, so that people can find you. If, if they're uh, able to get directly to your website, do they know what the program should be called? Um, I, I think we've all encountered programs that have weird names. So if, if somebody wants an online business program and they search for that on your webpage, will they find the right program? Yeah, we've alluded to it before where people try and come up with a creative name for their online program. And so it's hidden in clear uh, sight on their website, and you, you've called it you know, something besides uh, business program online, which you know, may not be fancy, but it works, right? And so people will waste time, and that time, in that time, they may just pivot and go look at another school. That's part of that healthy ecosystem is the, the navigation through that system where there is a pitfall moment or people can't find what they're looking for. It's easy enough to hop right back on Google and find another school. Okay, so if I'm this, um, this student who's been out of school for quite a while and who's Googling a program, and I, I do somehow get to the webpage and I find the online business program that I'm interested in, and I, I see a little button there that says, click for more information, and I click it, what happens? Um, now, on your campus, it may be something as simple as that the department chair gets an email that a student wants more information. And if that's the case, got some questions to ask, right? Is the department chair checking email regularly, for instance? Um, if this student clicks this link at 6 o'clock on a Friday evening, are they going to have to wait until Tuesday morning to get a response? Because in the world of online education, if they have to wait that long, they're gone. Um, on the other hand, um, is yours a campus that has a really well-oiled admissions machine? Um, something like a, like a call center, perhaps, where um, a bot will call them back. 2.5 seconds after they click that link. And if that's your campus, um, what's the follow-up like? Um, does the student, if they have detailed academic questions when they call in, have a way to get to a person that can answer them? Um, so, yeah, kind of the land, sea, and air approach. You know, the, the big players in this or the up-and-comers are the ones that want to really take that that lead and turning it into an enroll as I think I'm not, a, I'm not an enrollment guy, but I, I've been around enough of them to kind of know their lingo. And that is, it's, it's about, you know, that land, sea, and air approach to not lose that student, to take them from that interest inquiry through enrollment. And that's, that's a very non-academic part of our world, right? But it is essential. And if you look at we were just reading an article about um, southern New Hampshire. It's just gone to 175,000 students. Um, I know a little bit about what they do on the academic side. I don't know what they do on kind of the advising and enrollment side, but I guarantee you that ecosystem is kind of what we're describing uh, right now, where it's, it is literally a machine. And, you know, that has a negative connotation that, oh, this student is just a, a consumer or whatever, but that's their model. So to, to, to your point, Emily, if, you're, if that's not your culture and that's not how you want to proceed online, however you want to proceed, this part of your ecosystem, whether super personal or super technical or super mechanized, it needs to be in place. And it needs to be in place to kind of support the state admission and goals of that online program. But I think if you think of the big players, again, if you talk to an online student who's entered into that vortex, uh, they are hit a lot with follow-up, right? Because they know that that works. They're not doing it to be jerks. They're not doing it to do anything other than land that student, right? I mean, you make a great point, Wayne. Um, you, know, you have to look at the culture of your own institution, right? And however you do this process should be on brand yeah. in whatever way you can manage. But within that, there are certain non-negotiables, right? A student 
can't be left hanging for days and days and days. Speed is an inherently important part of the process. Um, even if all it is is an automated email back saying, we've got your query, so-and-so's out of the office, he'll get back with you Monday, that is so much better than silence. Yeah. Um, so definitely need to do speed and also need um, for the student to have a way to get accurate information and um, not to feel that they're simply being sold a good. Yeah. Uh, admissions is sales. I think we all get that. On the other hand, it's also an investment in student success. So the way you do admissions um, really does set up the student to to make it in your program or not. So then and is there value to investing in, you know, sales training in that sense mm-hmm. so that, you know, a lot of times I've seen, especially with the call centers, uh, you've got a bunch of folks who don't have a lot of knowledge or expertise in this area. They're kind of given the script, things to say, things to ask, uh, but they're really just kind of pushing the product. They're not really finding out what does the student need and helping them see how your university or organization can help satisfy those needs uh, through your educational program. So That's a great point. Um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and Aaron, I know you've, you've done some recruiting for the military and some places like that, and I've heard you several times make the point that I did a lot more listening than talking. Right. And, and that's going to help down the road, too, when we start talking later about the, the retention elements, uh, because if, if a student is really there to satisfy, you know, a deep personal need that they have, and you've helped them see how you're going to satisfy those needs with the services and programs that you have, uh, that's going to be a touchstone element that they can go back to during the hard parts uh, that your uh, counselors are going to be able to revisit with them, remind them why they're here, why they're doing it. Sometimes you'll see those emotional ads on television, um, and that's what they're going at. Those people are in those tiers because it was a big thing. They wanted to reach this goal, uh, and, and that's what this is. And so we want to help those people make sure that they're there for the right reason, in the right programs to accomplish goals in their lives. Yeah, great point. And, and the ones that do advertise a lot are typically the larger you know, programs out there that you see, and we know those national brands, and they are – um, often kind of emotive, and I think that uh, uh, the new strategy for a lot of them is they'll do all these graduation interviews. So, uh, which is the goal, right? right? It's it's whatever your motivation is. You do want to finish. So this is, and you've had some personal experience with that, right? With the interviews, I know you've seen. Uh, I think your wife went to a school, and they did some great work there. Yeah, my wife uh, attended an online doctorate program, and at graduation, they kind of, I think she made some type of connection there. They pulled her in for uh, some interviews, and if, um, you know, I won't share the name of the institution, but you can go to their website now and see the interview they did with my wife. And and again, I guess if I think back to her interview, it kind of segues back into this conversation, which was she could say positive things about it because her inquiry was good. Her on board, her admission and onboarding, you know, process was good. Her faculty experience uh, within the classes, the curriculum was good. So, you know, she kind of sold them because they they did a good job. I mean, she she was able to speak um, in a very positive manner and with a good ecosystem. It's like some of the larger programs. You have a good experience. You're going to tell ten friends. And you're going to help, you know, push that along. Same thing happens if you have a bad experience. You're going to tell, what, 20 people. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And post online about it, too. Yep. Well, and we have a school that, you know, we've been speaking to somebody who runs a a significant online program. And that is one of their biggest recruitment efforts is they take care of the students in their program so well that the vast majority of the enrollment for that program is based on word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I, one last question for me in, in this enrollment area, um, talking about ecosystem and thinking about the balance of an ecosystem, is there too much, right? So I'm sure we've all uh, filled out that one little form to get a piece of information and then have regretted it for the rest of our life. So is there, is there a place at which uh, there's too much, you know, and, and what does that look like or how do we know? Oh, yeah. I think we've all been there, right? Um, we we've clicked on things and, you know, your, your Facebook is filled with ads for the next 37 years. Aaron, you made the mistake of going to a car dealership yes. one day last week. <laughs> yes. I only go on Sundays so that I don't have to talk to humans um, because I don't, sometimes I want to shop secretly, right. And quietly. Right. Um, and yeah, I think there is too much. Um, again, you have to think about your brand, right? It's um, what makes sense in terms of your institutional priorities and what makes sense in terms of how you want to be understood by the students that are going to ultimately, you hope, be your graduates and represent you, right? Um, so there's a good persistence um, that I think is, is helpful. But, you know, when somebody's ignoring you 15 times, you know, maybe pause it for a bit um, because you're only going to create a nuisance of yourself. Um, you're going to start to look like, you know, Publishers Clearinghouse or something like that. In our working with schools, you know, that are kind of up and coming online schools, it's that's typically not their problem because they don't have the mechanism in place to kind of, again, hit with that constant land, sea in their effort. But we have, you know, talked to students and had experiences with um, institutions where some of the feedback we got was I felt like I was being stalked. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and one of the ways you can prevent that from happening, right, and I'm going to touch on something that's a theme that will kind of run through, I think, this episode, but – how do you communicate to know, right? So if we're all kind of independently doing stuff and you're hammering them this way and I'm hammering with email, um, somebody else is calling them all the time. Um, so how can we make sure that we're not doing that? You know, yeah. so, I mean, beyond kind of the robotic elements, the bots, but, you know, a good student information system is going to let you be able to make notes about, hey, I had this communication. They've said, hey, we want to talk to you again in a month, or hey, can you give me a call back in a week or something right. like that? Yeah, a good CRM will let you even set up a task for an admission counselor to contact right. that person in a month, mm-hmm. right when they want you to. Um, a good CRM will also um, help you work through the decision trees that any right. student's going to have, right? If, if somebody's coming in as a psychology major, chances are there's not a whole lot of special admission criteria or requirements for something like that. But if, if they're coming in to be a licensed teacher, um, a nurse, um, there's going to need to be some legal work done um, to make sure that student is going to be able to graduate from your program and practice in the field. So, Yeah, especially with the online programs, right? Especially with online programs. Yeah, teacher licensure in one state may not translate to another, and it's, it's really on the people that are helping the student through the application and matriculation process to communicate really honestly and in a timely fashion about that. Yeah, and the, the requirements of programs, right? So exactly. I, I did some online uh, advising way back, and I would talk to specifically education and counseling students were two of the ones that would wind up with the biggest problems. They would get enrolled in a program and they would get X, you know, way through the program and not realize there were other requirements. Yeah. Undergraduate work that wasn't even part of the program, mm. but that was a requirement for the licensure they were going, taking this program to get. Yeah. And that would then cause issues, right. you know, with re- uh, retention down the road. Sure, sure, as well it should. Maybe um, that's a nice segue maybe to all the other. So we've we've kind of in the, in this ecosystem that we're journeying through, hopefully this this healthy, uh, you know, jungle paradise on the path. And so let's say we're through this in, inquiry process and we are uh, in the admission advising cradle. Other things start to kick in, like the practicality of the application. Mm-hmm. 
what they need to work with to get an admission. You know, talking about things like um, um, unofficial transcripts versus transcripts, the things like transfer policy. Y'all want to kind of oh, letters jump? of recommendation. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, one thing, and, and this was the school I was at recently, and we, we fixed this pretty quickly, but um, one problem that happened, and, and it was just a workflow problem. Um, we, like pretty much every school in the country, went test optional for SAT, ACT, um, but we allowed students to submit test scores if they wanted to. So we had a workflow where if a student said, yes, I want to submit test scores, we would wait to make a decision on them until we got the test scores. Some of them never submitted test scores. So we're waiting, you know, a while to make some of those admission decisions when we really could have admitted many of those students on the spot um, without those test scores. If you're a four-point student, I don't need your SAT to be convinced that you're a good student. So we had to kind of look at that. We said, what are all these people who haven't sent this stuff to us? Same thing's going to happen online um, with things like transcripts. If they say, I have previous coursework and they haven't submitted it, what's the process look like to get that information out of the student? Um, yeah, and there, there are some schools that put that completely on the student, and then there are other schools that I've heard of that will really do all of do that. It. You tell us mm-hmm. what and where, and we are going to go get that for you and make sure that you're good to go. That's and right. it gives that school an enormous advantage. Again, back to kind of land, sea, and air and speed winds, the institution that's kind of paved that road more effectively. Statistically, they're going to come out better. Yep. And if, um, again, too, if you have one of those multi-stage admission processes, um, again, thinking of programs that have maybe clinical requirements where they can only take so many students at a time. So maybe they can't just admit on the spot, right? They're going to have to wait to a deadline and then say we're going to take our top 80 or our top 300 or something like that. Do the students understand what that process is going to look like? Are you communicating throughout it? Um, or do you just lose them while while they're waiting yeah. um, in limbo for your processes to run? If your process in this regard looks like something from 1850 versus the futuristic 2050, yeah. you're in trouble. And, we, right. and we've seen that. And we've heard stories about the process was so, again, it was like a, uh, a literary exercise for the student to, to, to uh, you know, to apply and, and go through all the steps and, and they're gone. Yeah. And, um, you know, things can go wrong if you have a very up-to-date process also. I mean, if you've got sophisticated workflows and things are going from one person to another, you know, make sure if somebody resigns that you update your workflows so that you don't have 300 applications for, you know, John who's working at another school to evaluate. Um, it can happen. The people-dependent factor. where That's you have, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that kind of covers that, uh, that front end. I'm sure there's a, a multitude of other things we could hit on. Um, but let's, uh, for the sake of, of time, segue here into talking about the onboarding and first semester experience. So, you know, as we transition from the application, somebody's been accepted. Uh, so, so now what? What happens here? You know, how, how do we find out? Uh, how fast can I take classes? Um, and so, you know, for me, I think that <laughs> that is, you know, so let's start with how do you notify somebody that they're, they've been admitted uh, into a program is getting admitted into the school and admitted in the program a different thing. Yeah, and once again, we've got these same questions to ask, right? What do the faculty do? Um, what is with the kind of um, worker bee staff level? And, you know, when do you need a higher level administrator um, who's going to weigh in on these decisions? Again, who touches a student? Um, and what offices does a student need to move through? And all of those need to be working together in harmony. Um, now, there's different models of this. Um, some some schools work very much on a, a kind of cohort model where, um, you know, if you're going to be an incoming business major, um, if you're that mom, 
Um, you're going to be in a set number of classes during your first subterm with all the other people that are coming in then, and you're going to proceed through that program together. Um, if that's your model, it's pretty easy to get you in classes quickly. Um, and that doesn't need to be done by somebody who ranks like a dean or a department chair. That can be done by somebody who's in a call center or someone in the admissions office, um, just kind of making that happen quickly. Where hopefully that leadership chain, you know, kind of operationally has chimed in and said, here, here is what the policies look like that would drive this, that would make for a, a healthy onboarding experience. We've, we've seen the horror stories where someone is, you know, welcome to our online program here. You're 21 hours for this eight-week subterm. Uh, you know, let's put you in stats and biology and A&P, and then we'll watch that student fail. So, you know, the course sequencing, that modeling of, of you know, how to, you know, really set them up for student success is sometimes missing even in these highly mechanized areas. Right. And so yet again, we're back to the listening and asking questions kind of phase, right? So beyond just getting them admitted, now we're, you know, whatever the model. So we might have a council that goes all the way through the process with them. We might hand them off at this point, Um, but we're in the program. So somebody should be talking to this student to find out what their life looks like, right? Because unlike your typical traditional classroom, Uh, You don't have a bunch of 18-year-olds who are generally moving away, coming here, and their full attention is on you. You have, you know, people in their mid-30s, you know, on average, uh, with a life, with job, with children, with responsibilities, and trying to find out what that is and setting them up with a course load. I mean, a sequence is great because then it can help you put them in the right order of courses, but the right course load, um, because we've seen numerous institutions that – in the sake of trying to, you know, press the accelerated button, um, because that idea is real exciting too, right? Getting done as fast as possible. But we have to also help temper their expectations about you can get done so fast or you can get not done at all because you tried to do six classes in one semester and you've got too many other things going on in life. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And um, I think, too, just on the, on the process end of things, um, we want to think about the human behavior aspects of it. Um, Not every time, but often um, good students who are ahead of the game and who plan ahead and so on are going to be the earlier enrollers. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to get there a couple of months before the term starts or maybe even more than that. Those are also often the students that are the most comfortable with watching their own success. So they'll be the ones who advocate for themselves and say, I'd like to take English and history with the science class. I don't want to take three math classes my first term. Well, if the people putting them in classes – have access to the full number of classes that are going to be available, all those English classes are going to fill really, really fast. And then when your week students come two days before the term starts, what's left? Well, three math classes are left. So you can kind of compound the situation by not not really doing your planning properly around student success. Yeah, you can't really count on the student to drive his own potential retention. That's right. So a healthy ecosystem has... Um, you know, processes and policies and steps and safeguards in place to kind of, you know, it sounds corny, to protect the least of these, right? And the at-risk students are, are students that, um, you know, let's call them the players in the space. They identify and they track and they, you know, they even have dashboards and, and such that intersect with an LMS that would clarify that this particular student you know, it's their first term, or they are coming in with a low high school GPA, or they're on some type of probation, and then that information can work its way through the ecosystem where advisors know that this student may need some extra help, and faculty will know that this student 
uh, needs additional help. So, you know, it's kind of the opposite end yeah. of the spectrum. Yeah, and, and one thing that can be um, really important, even for your great students, um, in your first term is a, is a legitimate orientation course. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Aaron, I know you've, um, you've played a pretty significant role in writing one of these, writing the text for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> in working in an online program, uh, an orientation to the, the school itself, its own processes, its policies, its support offices, uh, helping the student understand where to go, uh, who to talk to if they have varying issues, where to go for support if they know they're weak in the writing area, they're struggling, um, you know, in that space, uh, understanding what resources, especially in the online, it's it's a little easier in a residential classroom uh, or on a residential campus, traditional campus, to be able to figure out where these service centers are uh, and go there for support. But we're talking about somebody sitting in Idaho trying to figure out um, who do I talk to because I'm having this you know, billing problem because I'm having this uh, problem, you know, uh, with anything really, uh, financial aid issue, getting my aid connected. So uh, the first part of an orientation, whether it's, you know, pre the course, you know, at the admission stage or, you know, as part of a class is helping them understand the the university itself, the campus uh, and, and services around them, but then also understanding you know, just like we do FYE courses for young students coming in, there's a set of skills we want to give them. Um, these online students, again, coming in, some of them have school, but years ago, uh, they generally have a lot of life experience they're coming in with, right? And trying to get them back into the scope of research, writing, uh, critical thinking, uh, communication, you know, professional communication. Some people have not been in that space for a long time. And going through that will help prepare them. Uh, for success in their future classes. Uh, it will also have the potential to impact um, the amount of courses they take, how long they stay around, so that retention as well. We, we personally uh, had a student orientation course we did online. I think we were doing eight to 10,000 students a year through it at one point. Wow. Um, and the data we had came back and was showing that those students that got a D or better, a D. A so they D, passed at all. Yeah, a D was significant, so mm-hmm. not withdrawing or failing. Um, D is in dog. D is in dog. D is in dog. So if you got, basically, if you completed the course successfully, there was value. Those students were achieving uh, at least a full grade point uh, higher uh, than than their counterparts who had not been through the course. They also persisted uh, for several semesters longer. They took more courses and were more successful. And there was some some other little you know. Um, relational information that we saw they performed better in certain follow-up courses and whatnot and i think you've seen that in some larger contexts or other contexts as well um but we had some conversation about how you know causal is that or you know but in one way or another it was very very highly correlated uh and it may have been i think at best you you mentioned that boot camp experience you know it, it was so rigorous and kind of put them through the experience that they were then better prepared to work through their courses you know, down the road. Yeah, I think um, one of the values of a course like that, too, besides besides all the content, which is good, is if you have people who love students and who are very proactive and who, who like to establish relationships, um, that is worth 
so much. Um, I think that that zero week, right, that week mm-hmm. before official classes start is the trickiest time for any ecosystem in terms of function because you've got multiple handoffs happening, right? You've got admissions handing off to the faculty, but the faculty aren't fully engaged yet. Maybe you have an orientation team of some sort that's helping with the transition time. Maybe you don't. Um, in any case, you've got students kind of caught in no man's land, right, where they know their counselor, but they're kind of done with that, their admission counselor. Um, they want to know who's going to be teaching their classes. They want to know things like, um, where do I get my textbooks and are they in? If they're not in, what do I do? What happens? Um, they want to know when they're going to be able to go in Canvas or Blackboard or whatever and access their courses. They're going to want to know, are there going to be office hours when I can Zoom with my professor or do I need email? They're just going to start to wonder about all these things. Um, if they're proactive, they, they may want to see some syllabi so they can start to plan out what their life's going to look like for the next eight weeks or 16 weeks, whatever length of term you're on. Um, if, if you're like me and you discover you've got three major papers due in the same week, well, that's, that's going to require about two weeks of planning to get to that and probably more. Um, so. And are there things we can do to make some of that stuff easier as part of our ecosystem, right? So in some places, we've even gone through the, the concept and seen folks who, who offer some time on task suggestions yeah. in the syllabus. So mm-hmm. as we list the work, hey, here's an estimate of the amount of time. And that just makes it that much easier for a student to be able to look and say, okay, between these two courses, I'm going to need about 20 hours this week. Right. Uh, And that will help them adjust their life and spread that time out instead of trying to do it all on Saturday and Sunday. That's right. And when you build a course with Magellan Learning Solutions, (laughs) shameless plug, that's something we help schools with. Well, it, it sounds something like this. That's the sound of a healthy ecosystem. With a harp. With a harp. Yes. Heaven. But no, it is. It's where things start to really intersect where, you know, now, you know, to your point about, you know, the, the all important uh, course materials or books, you know, we've looked at the landscape and I mean, that seems to be a pretty basic premise of a, of a healthy online program and i.e. a healthy ecosystem. And sometimes it is, it is um, a quilted approach at best sometimes where it's not a very streamlined process. Students don't have the books on in zero week as we call it or, or on day one of the subterm. And the data suggests that when students go into, you know, especially a, a, an eight or five week online course, everything is multiplied. That, that you go five days without a book, that's almost game over, right? Yeah. So those things... Uh, they aren't afterthoughts. It is essential to have that kind of uh, part of the the machine up and running. Well, that's important to understand, right? And I think a lot of people miss that about online is just because it's eight weeks doesn't mean it's half the work. It's the exact same amount of work in half the time. Um, So it's an accelerated course. So having that book on day one, a big deal. And that's where we've seen a lot of folks incorporate into their ecosystem some of these digital uh, books and access to digital systems uh, as part of the uh, student fee system so that students have it on day one and they they see less problems with students dropping out of courses due to that. Bigger campuses that have large online programs tend to understand how all these moving pieces work together a little better just, I think, by dint of repetition. But um, I don't think your average faculty member probably knows – how financial aid can pay for books or what the process a student should work through to get that to happen would be, Um, nor is that necessarily their job. On the other hand, 
it makes great sense for the institution to be distributing that information in a very, very accessible place where a faculty member could easily find it if a student asks them, because a student will ask them if they feel like they've made a connection, um, and where the student may, may just have that to begin with. Um, I know on many campuses, you have to use the official university book distributor for your financial aid to work. You can't just go to eBay and buy your book and then use financial aid for it. Um, Students need to know that. Um, So questions like that need to have answers that are already determined. Um, There shouldn't have to be a rabbit trail um, to look for those. Because it's all part of a future Magellan podcast about cognitive load. Cognitive load. So if you're worried about, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm through the advising gauntlet here and now I'm in my first course, but do I have my textbooks or is, you know, how do I communicate with my faculty member? And, you know, that's all of that ecosystem, as we will learn, kind of um, narrows down that scope of of the cognitive load on the student and on faculty and on staff as well. Because when we all operate within a, a healthy system of any kind, it's what's that sound effect again? No. Nice. It's heaven. It's uh, academic heaven. Right, but all too often it sounds more like. Mm. Yeah. A little bit of cross training <laughs> does true. make sense in many of these cases too. Um, I know I've worked on both sides, admissions and academics, and um, if a student feels like they've made a connection to someone, maybe it's a counselor in the call center, they're going to just keep calling them even when they're in year two, year three, something like that. Um, and it's it's a little weird. It gets a little strange. But um, I know when I had admissions, I tried to make sure that, that my counselors could answer some basic questions um, about, for instance, how to find the registrar's office and w- when you need to do things like make sure you've dropped a class so that it doesn't show on your transcript. Things like that. Um, I think the same thing works on the on the faculty side. If a student during the recruitment process talked to a department chair about the criminology major, they don't need to know all the ins and the outs of admissions, but it'd be really good if they knew, for example, the drop-dead deadline to get that application in. Yep. Yeah, and to that end, it would be great if your ecosystem, your environment, your organization uh, didn't have academics and, and you know, the staff offices uh, as, as opposition to one another. Absolutely. Uh, the ideal ecosystem that thrives, uh, these are partners and they see the value in each other. Of course, we need the faculty and what they bring to the table. Uh, they're an absolutely essential part of a, a university, but so are these staff and, and uh, administrative folks. There's all of this background stuff that goes on. If we can work together, uh, and, and we have a lot of great institutions that do a great job of this. And the ones that struggle, though, this is a common thread as well, where these two entities are polar opposites and they don't communicate well. They're almost, you know, fighting between themselves a little bit. And that's always a little sad for the student. Yeah, it should be like a four by 400 meter relay, not a cage match. Wow. Yeah, that's a good illustration. There you go. Okay, so we're in the first week of classes now. Let's say we made it through zero a week. We got everywhere we need to be. Um and I'm, I'm that business student, and I'm 50 miles away from campus, and I have no intention of going there in person. Um, and I'm in three classes. Um, I'm in English and history and math. Um, and when I go in my English class, it's, it's in – everything's in Canvas. Um, but the syllabus is in one place in my English class, and I can't find it in my history class. And in my math class, I actually have to go to a third-party website, um, Pearson and McGraw-Hill or something like that, and work some problems there and then come back. Mm. Um, that's I, what we would call, at least for this part of the ecosystem, an unhealthy online learning ecosystem. 
Right. Yeah. 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 Um, no, it's, it's essential, you know, to, to help that student through that process um, at, at minimum, those initial courses, but ideally your entire, you know, online curriculum uh, would be enfranchised, so to speak. So there'd be, you know, we're not talking about content, but we're talking about structurally. A student should be able to go to the same place in every class and find their syllabus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they should be able to find the information for the, you know, disability support services, uh, all of that stuff should be available, and it should be in the same place. Uh, and that that's essential, or else you're just bogging the student down in all sorts of stress and, and frustration while they're trying to get started. Yeah, I've joked that an online course shouldn't be a corn maze. It should be rife with continuity to the other courses that, that the student is in. And the same thing goes with um, the, the continuity of experiment, experience between each faculty member. There should also be there should be policies that drive course development to create that enfranchisement, as we call it, or that continuity of experience. And same thing with regards to their interaction with faculty and staff. That's where those policy and procedures kick in. That they it isn't a guessing game of when I'm going to hear back from my faculty member or the staff member, but there should be a continuity of experience as well. And that that boils down to kind of you know the boring stuff that you know sometimes we don't like to talk about, which is um, you know the turnaround time on things like grading or communication mm-hmm. or. Um, you know, various problem solving or solutions for the students across the, the myriad of questions they have. That, yeah. that, that continuity is, is something that is part of a healthy ecosystem. And at least even if you're going to allow, you know, your faculty to have some policies that differ um, for whatever reason, it, it's still beneficial to talk through those decisions and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, not because you haven't had that conversation. Because there may be some places uh, you need to allow this program to have a different grading scale or some different policies based on some accrediting standards or whatnot. But at least to have thought through that and make sure. And, and in that situation, maybe as students are in that program, even let those students know, look, you're going to see grading policies or policies about late work here that are different from the rest of your courses. This is why. Just understanding that will help, you know, alleviate some stress and, and cognitive load on the students so they can just focus on learning. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we don't want to understate how hard it can be to develop some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, we make it sound very flip and casual and like, wouldn't it be nice if, if they could do that? And yes, wouldn't it be nice? But to do something like getting a standard Canvas template or Blackboard template um, is going to require quite a bit of cooperation. Um, it's going to take IT. It's going to take whoever is managing your LMS. You probably want some way in from student success. For sure, you're going to need faculty senate or whatever your academic governing body is um, to weigh in on all of that. And that's on most campuses, which move at glacial speed, um, it's going to take you some time. Um, so however you go about doing this, whatever um, way of getting this kind of um, helpful student-focused change in place is, um, just you need to figure it out, and you need to figure it out in the most efficient way that you can um, for the benefit of the students. Yeah, and you might not be able to make it happen tomorrow, right. but having the conversations or starting the conversations is the important part. That's right. I think everybody's playing on the same team. We don't always see the game the same way. Um, you know, I think, but everybody cares about the students. Nobody wants everyone failing, um, or maybe they do, but I think those are probably the outliers. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's that piece that should bring us all together as a team, right? The idea is that we are there to help these students get through, you know, their college experience, uh, achieve their degree, uh, and move on to successful things. And, um, yeah, we can do that together if we just talk and communicate and we, we have the conversations. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So the first term is not the only time there's a retention risk, though it's probably the biggest time. Um, Most campuses, online, residential, will lose more students during the first term than any other term thereafter. Um, But all kinds of things can go a little bit wrong in the ecosystem after that. Um, Although the ecosystem tends to be fairly faculty-driven, I think, after that point, um, there are really key pieces elsewhere, um, like advising, um, like the registrar's office, the career center, um, all of those supporting um, structures and offices that help bring a student to the finish line. Um, so I guess the, the questions for the rest of this, um, these are just some very specific things. But um, for instance, if, if I'm that business student and I'm in my um, intro to marketing class and I'm, I'm doing a group project, group projects online are really fun, by mm-hmm. the way. Very blast. popular. Very popular. Blast. Yeah, blast. It can be pretty hard. Um, so let's say that that situation happens where you have a group of five and um, two of the five members are MIA. Um, does the student know how to handle that? Probably not. <laughs> Typically, Probably not. right. Right. And it, it's really on the faculty member at that point to try to help the student navigate that. But this, again, is where it's where policies and things like that can, can help out, right? Is that faculty member, has, have they thought this through? Um, have they have they spent some time with the assessment office to talk about whether the student can achieve the outcomes in a group of three rather than a group of five, or do they need to come up with an alternate assignment, things like that? And again, a big part of what we do and something that helps is faculty professional development mm-hmm. specific to the tasks of online. They're going to have you know the answers or the, the various answers to this in their toolkit by going through some focused online training that, that probably – you know, they themselves, the faculty, help set up. I mean, like to Aaron's point earlier, everybody, for the most part, wants to do a good job online. And almost everything that we are talking about today, we either as faculty members online or administrators learn from other online faculty members. You know, like we've talked about before, it's still the Wild West of online learning, and good ideas are still being born every day of how to do these things better. Yeah, and so not even just professional development, but professional community, right? And so in some places we've seen where there's a very formal structure of support. So this faculty member has this person. Of course, you're always going to have that kind of chair structure or whatever, but other places have built in other levels to get more attention, uh, an instructional mentor, you know, up to wherever. But other places as well, you could have a, a simply mentoring community where a faculty member has other people they can go to and having an environment like that that, Hey, you know, Emily, I, I'm having this problem in my classes. You know, what have you done? You're a more experienced faculty member. You know, what have you done that's worked in the past? Um, you know, so that part of the ecosystem is is essential, too, because faculty are part of that ecosystem, and helping them thrive and be supported is is just as important. Yeah, absolutely. And taking it back to, you know, the, the, the group project question that we always use as example of things that students and sometimes faculty don't like in their online courses you know, going back to an ecosystem that has a sound course development process with a trained ID, a trained SME will create a group project that is probably not um, problem-proof, but will be designed and constructed in a way and think through the various elements to where it would perform well. And then you back up a, a well-designed project within a course with some training about how to triage issues that happen with that that's a very healthy ecosystem. And and that course design, sorry, not to harp on the faculty side of things, but that course design element can also be a key factor to making sure that we're supporting faculty well. That's right. um, so the faculty having, you know, of course they need to help write the curriculum, but helping, you know, if you have a quality ID 
they're also going to be able to help step in with maybe a, a faculty member who's new at developing an online course and help them realize you probably don't want to put that giant final paper right there, all of them in week eight. You know, you're going to suddenly have 50 papers, you know, to grade uh, in one week's time frame. Or, you know, are you putting in a, a key scaffolding assignment here? Are you going to have enough time to, to grade that and get them back without putting yourself in a, in a bad mental state, you know, or burning yourself out? I actually had a situation where it, it was during COVID. It was actually a residential class. It was an upper-level um, literature class, and we had a group project. And I, I've never had a problem residentially with a group project um, because, you know, everybody's there, and they're just kind of living in the dorms together and, and so on. So we went online, and I just – I lost a few students, um, and we had exactly the situation. And I actually – I had to call up our instructional designers because my solution um, was to combine a couple of groups that had lost some students. Um, I thought that – that's all right. You know, if these students have exempted themselves from the project, then they can just not be in a group and we will put together another healthy group out of what's left and it'll be fine. I didn't know how to do that in Canvas without erasing the work that was already in there. So I called up the ID team and they said, actually, you can't do that. You don't have the permissions level to do that, but we can do it for you. So that's that's an example of the, the ecosystem working really well. And um, I think they had that solved within maybe an hour um, and what I was able, when the students approached me, I said, here's what I want to try to do. I don't know how to do this. I need to ask for help. And I think that was a really good lesson for the students, too, to hear, oh, my instructor needed some help doing this. Um, because that's, that's really what, that's what learning's about, right? It's about leaning on other people and um, making your expertise bigger because of that. Yeah, great example. You have faculty, staff, IT, student, that whole community coming together to solve a problem, a learning problem, right? Right. Right. And I, I will tell you, the, the IDs were very, very happy to be asked to use their expertise in that way. Everybody wants to be appreciated. Everybody does want to be appreciated. <laughs> the harp sound. Oh, did it? That's what it was like. That's how we feel Except when we're that it was COVID when that happened, and I never <laughs> felt like that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so here's another question. Um, again, previous life had to do with some retention directing. And um, one of the signs of a later... Um, later college career retention risk is if a student who's, you know, been a maybe a BC student all along suddenly fails a class. Um, maybe their GPA is strong enough to that point that it doesn't put them in academic probation or academic warning territory, but there's an F there. Um, and many of our mechanisms often wouldn't catch that. So, so this is the question, right? If I'm that business student and I'm in my third year and suddenly I just start falling apart when I take my statistics class, who notices um, when that happens, and, and what's, what is somebody doing about it? Yeah, and I think in a, a healthy ecosystem that, that we've seen and, and helped build before, it's, it's multiple layers. Right. There isn't exactly. one fallback position that's, oh, look, I called it. No, it's, it's um, their advisor, hopefully several faculty members, if they're struggling in several courses, are going to see that. And, and, again, healthy institutions have dashboards or reporting systems or analytics that will – We'll kind of bring this to bear. I mean, I know some of the, the bigger players in the space, I mean, the amount of analytics that are at their disposal to triage student situations like this, identify them, and then actually supply, you know, the right type of help to turn that around for the student, I mean, it's 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 the great divider probably in, in, in larger versus smaller uh, online programs. It's that type of resource. And also from an administrative side, creating policies for faculty load in this space where you don't have somebody teaching 10 online courses to where it doesn't matter. You can put, 
you know, five dashboards in front of them, they do not have the time to look at them and find out and then reach out and have, you know, an engagement with the student. So making sure people have an appropriate amount, of, not to cheat them out of, you know, income or whatever, but to make sure that they are well taken care of and that they can then in turn take care of their students well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, in a beautifully functioning ecosystem with harp noises and things like that. Oh, okay. oh we going harp? Yeah, let's no, go no. harp. Let's go full harp. Okay. Thank you. Maybe one too many times, wasn't it? <laughs> it might be. One it might be many. overkill yeah. at this point. Um, probably what would happen or some version of what might happen might be that this faculty member who's not overloaded, right, would say, I noticed you're struggling in this class and I, I was able to check and I saw you're actually a pretty good student normally. Is anything up? Can I help you? Yep. And then the student hopefully responds to the faculty member and says, my mother is sick and I've not had as much study time as normal. Um, ideally, that faculty member will be able to pass that information on to the student's advisor, who could then possibly get some other things moving for that student. Um, I don't think you probably need to go full-blown therapy for something like that, but maybe there are support support resources that the school has available. Um, I think the advisor could also say to the faculty member um, something like, have you given the student any deadline extensions or anything like that, just to keep everybody in the loop, and hopefully the faculty member is willing to work with the student within reasonable limits. Um, and get this taken care of. And then that student shouldn't have to have 15 conversations with every separate office that's doing analytics about the fact that her mother is sick, right? That can add to the trauma rather than helping. On the other hand, if one person hears it, documents it appropriately, and then the institution brings support, that's fantastic. Yeah, and again, um, kind of alluding back to the the intro course that students would take uh, at a healthy institution, um, healthy ecosystem institution, and, and that is kind of a the student expectations that, uh, you know, it's not just enough to set all these policies on the, you know, on the faculty and administration and staff Mm -hmm. to keep things uh, with a high level of continuity. But did the students know about, oh, in this situation, it's like a bunch of if then statements, if this, then that. But in, you know, one of the main things that, you know, uh, thwart students' uh, success is life situations. And sometimes uh, I've had online students that just, they didn't want. They didn't think it was applicable to bring that up. That's a you know. Right. It was. I wasn't tr- struggling with the topic. I wasn't struggling with the course. I had a life situation issue come up. As we know, we're faculty are got to deal with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if the students know in this particular case, I need to reach out to these people or or try this tact or this approach. It again, most administration and staff and faculty are going to swoop in and, and give support to the student. All right. Well, that's quite a, a bit of the ecosystem there. But um, I guess a few other segues would be, I guess that last one is an example of quality assurance models, right? So um, I think some things that come to mind there are definitely uh, is the institution and our faculty and staff are very intentional about looking at the courses, looking at the data about those courses, Um Aaron put a great report together for us uh, years ago at an institution, uh, a report that we've been asking for for about 10 years, uh, and we called it the Traphagen Report, and it was basically um, what, are, what does the grade distribution look like uh, across the spectrum of our, of our, these were gen ed courses, but, you know, where were students having trouble? And he created a beautiful kind of piece of analytics that showed, man, this course is functioning very well, but in week four, there's this issue across the board where, you know, a certain percentage of students are struggling with it. And we could go in and triage that course. Are people going in and looking at end-of-course surveys? Are people going in and, 
you know, with a new course and looking at it with, you know, oh, we just launched this course. Before we run it five times, let's make sure that first subterm went well. There's millions of pieces like that in the ecosystem that, you know, you just have to take some initiative and see, okay, what are the different things we can do with processes and courses and data to drive student success? But always mixing them with some human interpretation, right? Not just... And, and I know that you mean that, but, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. you know, that's a scary part of data for folks. And so I know that we're not ecosystem, but the ecosystem maybe should for faculty and, and folks not feel like, oh, my God, data and dashboards, they're they're trying to, you know, find this and that. I mean, it all needs to be interpreted and understood in context. And, you know, yeah, we just, that's a great point. We just helped write a policy about um, about this and we're creating help creating an end of course survey. And it was important that we thought we, we added to it that this end of course survey data and this evaluation should not be the sole means by which a faculty yeah. is kind of assessed because it's just a piece. And sometimes depending on the sample size, it can, it can, can not exactly present the most um, accurate picture. So you have to look at the whole of things. So. Yeah. And I, I think you always have to think of it as, you know, again, ecosystem, a partnership, right? Um, yeah. When when your report came out, um, we spent a whole lot of time just kind of sitting with faculty and saying, so what's up in week four? Does stuff get really hard then? Or do you think students are going through something else? And they really appreciated being consulted as experts on their own courses. And frankly, we needed that. We were administrators. We didn't know. The most we could do was log in and look at it from the outside. Um, I think same thing with um, end of course surveys. I, I think of um, one example. We had a professor who taught a whole bunch of classes for us. He at one point taught every freshman that came through the entire institution because he had one of those battleship courses that everyone had to take. Mm. And his uh, end of course surveys weren't great. So, um, I, you know, I saw a number that gave me some concern. So I started kind of just looking at the comments and I, you know, I saw one word over and over and over again and the word was disorganized. Um, so I thought, you know, instead of going to him and saying, you're disorganized, um, I decided that I would just sit in on his class a few times and, and I did. And what, what I learned was that he wasn't disorganized at all. It was just, he was actually extremely organized. He just didn't communicate what his organizational schema was to the students so I made one tiny little suggestion, which is why don't you put a three or four point outline on the board um, or why don't you email it out to your students before you have them watch this thing that you're going to have them watch at home. And um, he did it and immediately there was a huge change and it was a partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, you know, and that's it wasn't exactly what thing. these types of reports can do with the online. So you, you look at something like this and you say, hey, there's this giant cliff in week four where suddenly there's this massive drop in submissions or, or quality or whatever. And it might be the same thing. Right. You, you work with a faculty member and they look and they realize, well, students seem to be missing that I want them to do this and, and offering a similar supplement as part of the course. Right. You know, could simply offer the clarification. And then you can watch that over the next terms and see does that, does that cliff improve? Does it yeah. become more of a bump maybe? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it may be as simple as an announcement in yeah. maybe week three yeah. saying, hey, your reading for next week is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. Just battle through. I'll get you there. Um, something like that will get a student through. Yeah, so data as a help to guide what we used to call uh, in another life at an institution, we would retrain uh, people, redeploy courses after triaging them, uh, retool them, and, you know, we would just move on. It was it was a it was an ends to a means to increase the overall quality of the student experience. And that partnership's important because for yeah. faculty to feel like administration is is you know, on their side, right. they have to know that we're not just looking at data and coming and saying, hey, you bad instructor. Right. You know? <laughs> so. so that's kind of one of our points here was, you know, 
uh, online-centric policies. Um, so we've kind of flirted with that a little bit here. And I think, you know, to kind of give an example of that, sometimes um, institutions will set up an online division, uh, small or, or whatnot, and they'll just kind of rest on their residential policies, mm-hmm. even down to the forms, you know, the, yeah. uh, the paper forms. Well, these students are, you know, in Iowa or, or, or wherever. That require wet signatures. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So just, you know, think how frustrating that is to a student where they maybe have a grade appeal or, you know, the dreaded student complaint. They, they have that right. And often institutions will kind of fall back on, on their uh, residential or traditional programs approach to things that just don't work for the online students. So whatever policies or processes that, you know, you set up to, to give support to the, to the online realm, um, just make sure it's doing that, right? Yeah, and I, I would say the same thing about your um, student services for online especially campuses that are primarily residential that have maybe a small online program or just starting to put their toe in the water there, are going to struggle a little bit, um, for example, with the hours that they're open. Um, If a student needs financial aid between hours that are not 8.30 to 5, what is their recourse? Um, Is there a way to actually talk to a human, or do they have to go back and forth via email for a long, 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 long time? And especially with something like financial aid where the vocabulary is not – in anybody's everyday way of speaking, talking to a person is really important. So um, just thinking through things like that, things like the library, if you have a mostly print-focused library, how do students access that? Um, Can the books be shipped to them? And on the other side of that, if that is the case, right, you can't probably overnight transition to a fully digital library, but are you communicating with the students that you'll need to plan ahead for your research project because there's going to be time required to get these books to you? Um, just just really thinking about what it feels like to be a student in your system. Yeah. It's it's a very important thought exercise and not one that I think we often go through. And it could be overwhelming, again, going back to this idea that suddenly you're just like, oh, we've got to be this, and you want to be there tomorrow. Right. Um, that's very unlikely, right, that you're mm-hmm. going to get all of that figured out. But thinking through these policies and thinking, okay, we can't be there right now. We can't afford uh, all of these online digital databases, but – what can we do to help support the students until then while we work at that, right? And so it's just thinking through, it doesn't have to be the perfect solution that, you know, the, the best institutions all have. It's, okay, for your institution, what can we do to best, you know, help the student in this or, or faculty member, you know, in our environment and make sure that they're flourishing? Yeah, and I think that's maybe the, the piece that uh, – and, and to clarify, I think we would all agree, well, this isn't even a flyover of an ecosystem. This is a lunar orbit of an <laughs> ecosystem right. because we have barely touched the surface on, on a lot of the, 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 the micro life, if you will, in our ecosystem. Because there, it just each, each category yields 10,000 different things that can be done to do these things well. Um, and a big part of that, and we've, we've kind of broached it a little bit, is just online community. It's still... Probably, and I think in our, the three of us have had a lot of discussions about this, still radically just an underdeveloped piece of, of, of online learning. Just how, how do you do community? Yeah, the, we've gone through a lot of systems and policies and process and things about course design and, and whatnot um, that kind of are community in a way, but they aren't really that. So I think that's, that's probably a, a future podcast is what is the – uh, future of online community, uh, you know, student to student, faculty to student look like. 
I think the the space is wide open there. And there have been a lot of attempts, and they 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 generally don't do well, right? Uh, and some of the things we don't think will create connection and community, you know, uh, surprise us and and do amazingly well. So yeah, I think there there is no perfect answer for that one yet. I think there's a lot of things people have been trying, things people have been doing, and, and I guess that's what we can do right now. You know, is continue to try continue to, to reach out to students, continue to provide opportunities, um, you know, observe, correct, improve. One thing is we do not need another school's version of Facebook uh, for students. No. <laughs> no, and it, it seems like um, the main examples I've heard over the years of students that can uh, kind of create community with other online students happens, again, very organically where uh, in, a, in a, a group chat or a discussion board or in a group project – you know, phone numbers are exchanged, so you're kind of now outside of the school's mm-hmm. ecosystem, and now you're in the the world of text messaging or calling, and then that's where kind of a um, a peer to peer student kind of connection can happen. But the school has nothing to do with it, right? Have you ever thought about something and then just the ads show up on Facebook? Could you imagine like thinking about your student problem or telling your mom about your student problem, and then suddenly the student accounts. Uh, ad shows up on your... Yeah, that's how you know you're talking scary. to yourself. <laughs> Sorry, total sidebar. Totally fine. Chase, um, chasing a rabbit there, chasing a rabbit. But yeah, this this is not, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of humility, coordination among offices, a lot of strategy, some good leadership um, to get this to happen. I think, you know, just one tiny example um, that for some reason took us about 10 hours of meetings to get to, but... Um, when when students were placed on academic probation at an institution I worked at previously, the, the registrar would send out a communication about that, and their academic dean would also do that. And they were very good communications. There was a lot of information about the steps the students needed to take. And they also were so long that no one on earth could read them on their mobile device. Then students would say they didn't get them because they didn't read them. Right. Um, they would delete them. They wouldn't follow the steps. And then everyone's frustrated, right? The communication was there. The institution had done what it was supposed to do. But it took all of us sitting down and saying, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is the message didn't land, right? So um, my office ended up following up with a one-sentence message. You've been placed on academic probation. What can I do to help? I guess that's two sentences. I would get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses um, just because it was a very mobile-friendly. And, you know, some of them would be things like, you know, bruh, what? Um, Or... What is probation? They'd be things like that, but that then let the ecosystem start doing what it does, right? I could get the referrals in place. I could say, I'm going to have your advisor call you. I'm going to have your dean call you. The registrar is going to talk to you. Um, Can you email? Things like that really, really matter. And um, just because you're doing right doesn't mean the ecosystem is working in a healthy fashion. So you got to really look at what's happening on the student end of things um, to really judge whether it's working. And sometimes it's just a matter of kind of that, that angle, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they took the right steps, but it was too long. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't a, a seismic shift. It was a, well, we need to shorten this. And, and kind of sticking with the, the lunar orbit thing, it's like reentry, right? If that capsule comes in at the wrong angle, yep. it'll burn up. Yep. Two degrees different, it enters the Earth's atmosphere safely, right? right. So, so many of these things are... Uh, and, and we've worked with a lot of clients that really want to do a good job online. And sometimes it was just as simple as a, a tweak, you yep. know, an angle of descent, and they started to experience some success. And one thing that, you know, really came out of this that was lovely, I think, too, was, um, you know, I gained a really 
strong appreciation for what a great job the deans were doing, um, chasing down students, um, for how good the registrar was at helping them think through their options to get off of probation very quickly, um, for how responsive our advisors were. I wouldn't have known any of this if I hadn't had a chance to work with these other offices around campus. And I think we're all in the same situation, right? Um, That two-sentence email out to an online student that gets the machine moving, um, it builds our community too. That's right. In that note, it, it leads us to kind of the big questions institutions need to ask themselves, right, is, you know, you're implementing an online program, you have an online program, um, you know, to think about. And so if you're an organization with an online program, you know, are these online students uh, an integral part of your campus? And, and, you know, are you thinking about providing the same kinds of support, not the same exact support, you know, because it's different. So are you thinking about context. how to create yeah. that online ecosystem for those students? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's important to think about that. And those are kind of big questions schools, I think, need to ask themselves. Yeah. Because when they don't ask those questions, the, the solutions aren't going to be there and the program isn't going to be healthy. And it's honestly not going to grow. There's, there's numerous online programs in this country that we've looked at. And 10 years ago, they had three or 400 online students, which is a... a, a a relatively healthy online program, but 10 years later they have maybe 200 or 250 students because as it's got more competitive, students are going to um, they're going to find those institutions like we find anything in this life that is better. You know, we were kind mm-hmm. of market driven even in education, right? And students are going to go where there's a better overall experience. Okay. Well, um, kind of. Trying to wrap things up, I guess it's kind of time for some final thoughts um, and see what everybody's kind of last word here is. And if we don't mind starting this week, uh, just jump in and say, you know, I, I think this has been a great conversation. Ecosystems are delicate things, and and they take a lot of balance between all of the elements. And so, you know, if you don't have enough of one thing, you know, what can you do in another place to try to balance things out? I think my final thought is just that this can be intimidating to think about, whether you have an existing online program and you're realizing you don't have this ecosystem uh, or you're trying to start an online program with your your institution. This is overwhelming. There's a lot of moving pieces, but just starting the conversation and thinking about it is going to move you in the right direction more than you were before. So I, I think just have the conversation ask the questions and think about these students like they're your on-campus students. And I think you'll end up in the right place. Yeah. And I think this will also, um, it will be a tremendous learning experience for everyone who goes through this process. Um, Most universities are very, very siloed. Um, That's just kind of how it works, right? The faculty are over here doing their thing and this department is over here doing its thing. And then this other department is over there doing its thing. Um, Never the twain shall meet. An ecosystem requires communication. Um, It requires interdependence among all of these. And I don't know that too many of us know how to do that on the front end. So it it takes a lot of kind of excavating and saying, what, what is the process? How do we, how do we do this? Um, Maybe secret shopping it, or, you know, maybe spending part of the downtime between semesters, if there is downtime between semesters or part of your summer, touring around your different online offices and seeing what they do and how they do it. Um, It may turn out that we think we aren't doing things that we are doing and we just need to do a better job referring. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a, a story comes to mind of a, uh, I was dean over an online division at a school and I got 
uh, a lot of the uh, you know student complaint issues or and I got a lot of good news and sometimes I got you know student complaints but this particular student had gone through another department at the institution not the one that uh, I was a part of and her experience was so bad that she had decided to leave and so I was kind of her you know kind of parting shot at the institution and and this is an institution by the way that has almost all of these systems that we've described in one way or the other. But guess what? Even with a tight system, things still, you know, slip through the cracks, and this particular student has slipped through the cracks. And she was, I just remember her disappointment in this and that I, I literally looked at this as, mm, this is a failure on our part. We have failed this student despite all the systems. And, and I often pondered what is going to happen to her now. What is going to happen to her academic dreams and goals and professional dreams because of this? Maybe she went on to another institution. Maybe she was done with online. But that was an individual in a pretty healthy ecosystem that was, from what I gathered 10 years ago uh, from the story, she was a good student that had just slipped between the cracks within a healthy ecosystem. So just know that imagine that all of this isn't in place. What's happening to the students that aren't having, you know, uh, this experience, this positive experience to kind of to push through with all the support and help we've talked about today? That's the thought I'd like to leave is because we have a responsibility to our best students that we accept and to the worst students that we accept. And our goal is to make them all better. Mm -hmm. All right. That's uh, this episode on creating and fostering a healthy online ecosystem. We appreciate you listening. Uh, Adam? Thank you for listening to our discussion on online learning ecosystems. If you enjoyed the podcast today or found it helpful, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or where you listen to podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think. Come back next month where we will discuss the topic of cognitive load. If you or your school is looking for help with your online ecosystems, RSI, consulting, or course development, our team would love to help. Reach out to us at thinkmagellan.com. Thank you for joining us on the Magellan Podcast, navigating education in the 21st century.